This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, listeners to Humane. Today's guest speaker is Mike Robbins, an author of five books, including his new release, We're All In This Together. It's an honor to have him here on the show. I've connected through a few of his colleagues in the industry who said Mike is the man and working on some great things in the time of COVID. Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, David, thanks for having me. Good to be here. How are you? I'm, you know, holding up, you know, in New York City in the past couple weeks, you know, we have the USS Comfort docked, you know, we have a new field hospital coming out in Manhattan in Central Park, the Javits Center went online in the last couple weeks. It's a whole new world order. It really is. It really is. I'm here in the San Francisco area. And you know, we've been sheltering in place for, you know, a number of weeks now. So and our thoughts and our hearts are with everyone in New York and everyone everywhere who's dealing with this whole thing. It's a it's a new world we're in. Yeah, it's, you know, it's more than just being safe and staying healthy. But I mean, we've seen also in the last few weeks how the living room concert for America came online with Elton John and all these musicians. I know I saw from New York and you got to see it from uh, the Bay Area. What was your take on that concert? Well, I thought it was great. And I mean, I've been really appreciating a number of artists and comedians and people, you know, just putting their work out into the world in unique ways. That concert itself was was great. We have teenage daughters at our house so they're big Billie Eilish fans and Sean Mendes and Camila Cabello and a lot of you know pop stars so they were very interested but it's definitely called upon I think a lot of us myself included to sort of dig deep and think well what can I contribute to the world what can I contribute to others um, and now that most of us are confined to our own um, you know living spaces slash working spaces 
we're not only having to get creative in how we do it, but I do think there's, um, you know, a desire for us to connect, even though we're all uh, separated by time and space more than ever these days. I thought it was so amazing to see some of these artists like Green Day and and not just having flashbacks to them and Backstreet Boys. <laughs> but, you know, you would think that some of these celebrities were living in mansions and they're not. Some of them are living right. in homes just like us. And, totally. you know, and they have families. I mean, we even saw Tim McGraw when he had his presentation. His wife was recording the video. So, right. Well, and, and it has been interesting, you know, I've been watching like Seth Meyers or Jimmy Fallon or some of these late night hosts, like Jimmy Fallon had Lin-Manuel Miranda on a few weeks ago, and Lin was just sitting in his apartment in New York City playing on his piano, one of the songs from Hamilton. And again, it just, there's something cathartic about it. There's something unifying about it is, you know, here are these famous people who we may admire and, and love their art and their work and realizing, you know, they're just human beings, you know, dealing with their family on the the concert for America you were mentioning, you know, Sierra is married to uh, Russell Wilson, who's the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, and he was throwing footballs around with his sons. And, you know, just just seeing the humanity of it all, even I've been seeing this with a lot of our clients, you know, we work with a lot of big, you know, tech companies and big corporations, and everybody working from home and being on Zoom or on Skype or on Blue Jeans or whatever video platform they happen to use is we're just, you know, there's three-year-olds in meetings and dogs barking in the background. And in some ways, you know, the rules have changed very quickly through this, that we're all getting a chance to connect with and see each other's humanity, you know, as people are trying to do work from the dining room table and their kids are off to the side trying to get their schoolwork done online and all these things that just, you know, a month or two ago would have seemed unfathomable. It's now the world that we're in. And, you know, granted, we're in this period that hopefully is only going to last a finite amount of time and we move through it. But it's probably going to change so many ways of how we work and how we live moving forward. And without being overly Pollyanna or naive about it, you know, my hope is that it can really make some changes for the better in how we work and how we connect with each other authentically. I think so. And, you know, both of us as being people in the space of online and in real life. I mean, I saw there was this photo in the last uh, couple of weeks of Ira Glass, who's from This American Life. Right. And they had him recording a new podcast episode in his closet with clothes <laughs> around him for the sound <laughs> acoustics. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating that, hey, look, he's in Manhattan and it's just like the rest of us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, again, it's it's can we adjust to you know, what's needed. Look, I mean, one of the things that I've been saying a lot as people have been talking to me and a lot of our clients are struggling with how do we engage teams and companies working from home. And while that's important, and I've written a bunch about it just in the last few weeks and been talking a lot about it, it's also important, I think, for a lot of us to acknowledge if we have the ability to work from home, what a huge blessing that is and what a privilege that is. Because I just think my heart goes out to people who work in movie theaters and restaurants and shopping malls and, you know, places that are shut and closed indefinitely. And, you know, not only are a lot of people who work in those places, in, in many cases, you know, living sort of hand to mouth, they're also now the most vulnerable with, you know, the economic impact of all of this and no ability. You can't, you know, sell clothes at the gap while you're at your house on, you know, on Zoom like that. It doesn't work that way, as everybody knows. But I think, you know, in the midst of the frustration and the challenge and the fear that's real for all of us, however this is impacting us, it's also, I think, important to try to have some perspective. 
So looking at the future of work, we're not sure where it's going to be, but what we do know is that there's been an acceleration of this digital transformation, of yep. this online communication, and it can be very complex. I know in New York City, we have all students now learning on iPads and internet right. connections. As you mentioned, you know, maybe someone's throwing a football in the background or playing with the dog. <laughs> I mean... Right. What do you think the future of work's looking like either during COVID or post-COVID? Well, look, I mean, I think there's a lot of companies, especially tech companies who, you know, global companies who've been needing to embrace, um, you know, video and, and other platforms in order to communicate. There are a number of companies that we work with that like that's the primary way they communicate anyway prior to COVID. I think now what's happening is we're seeing so many people forced to have to embrace some of these technologies and learn different aspects. All of us in, in a lot of ways, even those of us who really embrace it are having to learn different skills and practice. You know, even you were talking about Ira Glass, you know, recording his podcast from a closet. He's probably not going to have to do that in the future. But I do think that this is going to fundamentally change the way we work. It, things have been changing pretty rapidly in the last number of years with respect to technology. But imagine if we were going through this in 1975. Like we would literally just be sitting at home reading the newspaper and sending letters to each other and talking on the telephone. Like those were the only ways we could communicate. So again, on the one hand, how beautiful that we do have all of these ways that we can communicate with each other. And I think it's important for us as individuals and for companies to really look at how do we not only get through this time, but what can we learn from this experience that's going to allow us to work in a more effective and productive way, but also humanize the technology, if you will, because that's been one of the challenges over the years and continues to be as much as I love, you know, Zoom and Skype and, and everything else. It's not the same. Even you and I doing this podcast as great as it is, and we can see each other on video, even though we're just recording it on audio. It's a different experience if you and I are sitting in the same room. It definitely is a different experience. And I know you, you just shared about both non-traditional and traditional industries, right? If, if you're a tech worker in big tech and, and you work with a lot of these clients, it might be much of the same, just right. not in your buildings in SF or New York City, but a lot of traditional industries are getting disrupted during the times of yeah. the COVID era, right? Sports, baseball, basketball, professional services, hospitality. I mean, right. you know, in your books, you've talked about that you've had a long history with a lot of these sports industries. Um, what are you seeing with some of your peers and colleagues who are still in sports? Well, uh both been a huge sports fan my whole life. I actually played baseball all growing up and I uh, got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. Didn't end up signing because I got a chance to play baseball in college at Stanford. Went to Stanford, then got drafted by the Kansas City Royals out of Stanford and signed a contract. Unfortunately for me, I ended up injuring my pitching arm when I was still in the minor leagues. But my baseball career, basically, I started at seven, got hurt at 23 and finally retired at 25. So I played for many years. And then, you know, we've worked with the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's and the Atlanta Braves and a bunch of teams in the major leagues as well as the NBA and others. And so what I'm seeing inside the sports world right now is, first of all, everybody is panicked because they don't know what's going to happen. You know, the NBA season got suspended. The major league baseball season is postponed until indefinitely. You know, we're hoping by the time we get the football season, American football season here in, you know, in the fall, that things will be relatively back to normal. But the truth of the matter is for live events, concerts and you know, sporting events. And even in the work that I do, when I go speak at lots of big sales conferences and leadership conferences, I mean, those things will eventually come back. We don't know when and we don't know how, but part of what I think a lot of these sports leagues and, and entertainment properties are trying to figure out is 
how can we deliver the entertainment and the content that we have to people in a way that they want it and can use it. I mean, the thing about sports, a lot of the sports leagues are making some of their you know properties available for free or you can access and watch mm. old basketball games or old baseball games. And it's weird because we don't normally think about watching games that have already happened. We want to see something new and live, you know, and the only thing that we really watch live in our world today are sports and news, you know, maybe the Oscars or some other thing. But for the most part in the entertainment world, I think it's turning things upside down. I don't know that they know exactly what to do and they're kind of just hoping and waiting for, you know, things to get back to normal, but it's impacting a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's jobs in the short term. Now, you mentioned a, a very big phrase here that we talk about in education a lot, which is upside down or flipping the classroom. Right. And flipping the classroom often is getting into that digital experience and having assessments where students get to discover their learning. But now in the online learning, I've been following some of my former uh, high school teachers back in Florida, and they've told me now we're all doing Zoom. And one of the big things they said, because um, as well, I was going to give a keynote at, at a conference this summer. And the teacher said, look, I think now is it's a great time to accelerate online learning, but students and parents need to have patience with the teachers and patience with employees because yeah. it's a whole new learning curve. It really is. Well, and you know, it's interesting. So our girls are 14 and 11 and they've actually grown up going to um, Rudolf Steiner inspired Waldorf schools, which for the philosophy of Waldorf education for the kids, especially when they're young, is to try to actually keep them away from media and technology as much as possible while their brains are developing, which is a different philosophy than a lot of more standard traditional education. But what's interesting, so here our girls are now at a charter school, they're 14 and 11, eighth grade and fifth grade, and the school has some technological capabilities, but not a lot. And so just trying to figure out how to make that work. And when we think about this, it's also, as we know, whether you're in New York City or San Francisco or somewhere in the middle of the country or somewhere else in the world, you know, that the technological capabilities of schools are often dependent upon the socioeconomics of that school or that community. And the challenge that we face is both the practical part of it is like having patience to what you're saying, but also realizing that not everybody has access to the same technology. And so just as that exists in school in person, it also exists online. And one of the things I think we also have to factor in right now for our kids in school and just education in general is that everybody, including all the adults and teachers and educators, as well as the kids, people are freaked out because this is a really scary time and it's uncertain. So I do think there's going to be some good stuff that comes out of this of how can we embrace digital learning and online learning in our schools in a way that's going to benefit students. And then where do we see where the limitations of that are and remember that the education experience, just like the meeting experience or the conversation experience is different when it's done virtually than when it's done in person. That's right. And whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, myself, I've been in the education industry for a few years. And actually, our parent company is K-12. They're one of the leaders of the online charter school system in the U.S. in over right. 35 states. And I think they're one of the industries that has been having to adapt as in scaling up so much because there's never been so much demand for charter schools. We've seen a lot of public school students and parents say, I don't want to be in public school anymore. Right. Let's go to charter school. Well, and part of it is also just the way in which when you think about how we're thinking differently, I mean, so much of your work in this podcast is about thinking differently. It's about design thinking. It's about breaking the mold of how we go about things. And so the nice thing about charter schools, and look, there are people that love charter schools, and then there's people who are very anti-charter school. 
I understand the arguments on either side, but in general, I think what we're wanting in education, just like in business, just like in our culture, is how can we be innovative and creative? How can we adapt and adjust to the moment? And again, a school, what's necessary for a school and how we educate our children in a certain community is different than another community, is different than another time and place. And so I think we have to just be open and continue to adjust and adapt. I mean, one of the things about the business world, particularly the tech world, and there are a lot of issues in the business world, there are a lot of issues in the tech world, but the way that the tech world has been able to be nimble, to innovate, to change with what's needed, with what's being demanded by the marketplace is often what drives a lot of innovation. Now, again, in something like education, where you know there's not profit in it in the same way for better or worse, and the goals are different, sometimes again, in, in other things that happen inside the government, services for people, there's not as much innovation that happens because it's not driven by the same market conditions. So I think right now what's happening is we have this big thing that we're all impacted by in COVID and it's forcing a lot of change, you know, and again, it's a cliche, but we say, you know, it's like necessity is the mother of invention. We've all had to innovate in certain ways and education is a place where that's definitely the case. I mean, I feel for not only my kids, but all these kids and imagine being a senior in high school or a senior in college and all of a sudden your whole educational, you know, the end of this big moment in life has been disrupted significantly but again, how do we embrace the disruption, get through this time, and then learn what we can from it to be better on the other side? Yeah, I think, Mike, some of that embracing the disruption is by innovating as both individuals and as teams. And yes. you shared the right word, design thinking. In my experience as an educator, I work a lot with product managers and data scientists and customer success managers. And all these teams have their standard roles and responsibilities. But now is the time where you need to think about every single person on your team, what is their perspective? How right. do you adapt? How do you work together there? And I know a lot of the work you've written about and spoken about in your books and series is about human-centered design. Can you tell us more about where you think we're going with that? Absolutely. Well, a lot of times, I mean, look, there's a lot of really smart people like you and others who are, you know, have expertise in design thinking. And, you know, I think about the D school at Stanford where I was an undergrad, but wasn't involved specifically there. And a lot of times when we think about design thinking, we're often thinking about, you know, it's sort of human centered and how do we think about the design of a product or what we're doing and how this impacts with human beings. When I think about design thinking or I'm working with teams, it's often to your point and how you set this up, how do the teams internally working on a project, working on something new or on anything, think about how do we shift our mindset in how we're going to go about creating this thing so it's done in a way that's as collaborative as possible? You know, my, my background in sports taught me many things, David. One of the things that I learned early on and became fascinated by, and ultimately it's what inspired me to start doing the work I've been doing for the last two decades, was I always thought as an athlete, like if you had the best players, you would have the best team right? If you have the most talented players, you should have the best team. And that was not the case at all. And I learned mm -hmm. it many times in sports. I was on teams where we had, you know, really good talent, but the team wasn't nearly as good as the talent. And then I was on other teams where the talent was, you know, decent, not great. And the team was even better. Like we would beat other teams that had better players than we did. And I never could quite understand what it was, but by the time I got to college and when I was playing professionally, we would talk about it. We called it chemistry, team chemistry. And it's like, well, what the heck is that? I don't know, we really couldn't define it, but you knew when you had it and you knew when you didn't have it. And it was basically the intangible qualities that allowed us somehow, some way to like put our little egos aside and be interested in each other's success, wanting to 
win as a team more than simply just succeed as an individual. And while that sounds very personal, and it is, and almost a little bit kind of touchy-feely, and it is, it's actually an element of design thinking and thinking about how do we take this group of individuals who all have talent and skills, but all have their own egos and their ambitions, and try to sort of cultivate an environment where people can work together in a way that actually brings out the best in everybody. And I thought erroneously this was a sports thing because I was an athlete and had been spent so much of my life focused on sports. Imagine if you could listen to a podcast where James Delos tells you why he bought Westworld. Well, James Delos isn't real, but Christopher Slow of Reddit, Ryan Graciano of Credit Karma, and Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers are real. Code Story is a podcast featuring tech leaders reflecting on their human story in creating digital products. In the show, host Noah Labhart digs into the critical details about what it takes to change an industry, how a tech visionary got started building their world-changing product, and how they scale their product on their journey. Our tech leaders are not only brilliant builders, they are humans with a human story to tell. If you want to hear the real human stories behind tech, Code Story is the podcast for you. Subscribe to Code Story now on every major podcast platform or visit Code Story at codestory.co. When I got hurt and then I moved home here to the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 90s, I got a job working for an internet company based in New York, but we had a San Francisco sales office and I'm on this sales team and I'm thinking this whole thing's going to be way different than sports. And it was, but immediately I realized, oh, that whole team chemistry thing that I erroneously thought had something to do with sports, that has nothing to do with sports. That has to do with humans and how we come together or not. And after just a couple years working for a few different internet companies in the 90s, I started my consulting business basically with this question of what does it take to bring a group of talented, smart, ambitious human beings together and create that kind of environment that allows not only the individuals, but the team as a whole to really thrive. And that's basically been my fascination, my curiosity for the last 20 years. And the books that I write and the work that I do has been continually trying to unlock that. And quite frankly, on the surface, it seems relatively simple. But when we dig down into it, it's super complex. Because as human beings, we're just complicated and trying to get a group of humans together to really kind of row in the same direction or whatever cliche we want to use is not easy at all. You know, the two sports that I spend most of my time uh, enjoying are both tennis and basketball, and they're mm. both polar opposites. One is a team, uh, but and you still have that star player, MVP, and the other one, it's tennis. It's all independent on yourself. But, you know, I think as you're sharing, it's still unlocking teams because even tennis, you could play doubles or the team might not be another person, but it could be your mind and your physical body at the same time. Totally. Well, on an individual sport, and I didn't, I never played tennis competitively. I mean, I played it for fun, but the two sports I played, I played baseball a lot. I actually played basketball. I wasn't nearly as good. But one of the things on an individual basis, because in baseball, there's a ton of like, I was a pitcher. There's a ton of like standing on the mound, dealing with my own, you know, emotions and thoughts. And that was actually the hardest part. So I can empathize with what tennis must be like that you have all the skill and all the ability and all the things you've learned technically to do, but you have another competitor on the other side and you have to compete with yourself. And often the hardest part of life, whether it's sports or anything else, is dealing with ourselves. So like the mindset that we take, you know, can we take that design thinking approach and turn it within 
and think like, what do I need to do or how do I need to operate or how can I think so that I can set myself up for success? And that's a really tricky thing. You know, I was talking to a few years ago, I was talking to a sports psychologist friend of mine named Mike Gervais, and he said this really interesting thing. He said, you know, in our culture, what gets celebrated is the mastery of task or the mastery of skill. If you're really good at something, whether it's tennis or it's business or it's technology or it's the arts or music, right? You master that task, that skill, you get attention, you get recognized, you get compensated, you, right? You can be successful in our culture. He said, what we don't focus a lot on though is mastery of self. And he said, to be good at anything and ultimately sustain that success and grow, you gotta master yourself. And that's not something that we spend a ton of time on. I mean, there's more awareness around this in the last, say, decade. We're talking a lot more about mindfulness, both in our schools and in businesses. We're looking at well-being and different things. And even right now, in the midst of COVID and all of what's going on, the hardest part of dealing with all of this, there's so many things outside of our control, what the government's doing or what's happening with the virus or how it's impacting our work or all these things. How do I show up every day for work? How do I engage with my family, with my coworkers, with my stress, with everything, right? Because we're all dealing with similar macro experiences, even though we have our own little world that we're in. But the difference is we're not all responding the same. And that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for, David, that I learned as an athlete was like, oh, so much of success or failure has to do with mindset and approach. Yeah, we need some talent. But the, tr the same is true in business, the same is true. I mean, you gotta have some skills, right? If I don't know anything, if I can't communicate at all, I'm probably not gonna be very effective as a writer, as a speaker, but the skills are just sort of the baseline. And then we take that growth mindset approach to how do I adjust my mindset? How do I approach the work and other people in a way that's gonna allow me to be effective and ultimately have some sense of joy and fulfillment in what I'm doing if I can. Everyone today is remote and yes. this is going to, you know, go back into a world that's split with remote and in-person experiences. But I've been reading a lot and following a lot of thinkers today. And some things that I've seen as takeaways is some people will come out better prepared and better ahead as a result of COVID and others will form bad habits and, you know, fall to the wayside. And yeah. the challenge is, I think what you're sharing is about competing with yourself and mastery is no longer are we in this structured environment of having the boss right next to you or, you know, having your team there to support you, mentally lift you up. But now it's like, hey, David, Mike, you guys got to do it. We got to push ourselves to the new limit. I mean, right. what do you think people can do so that they can come out successful after everything? Well, I think first and foremost, as we're going through this, what's really important is to have some compassion for ourselves. And even as we come out of it, like this is hard, this is scary, this is different. Some of us are responding better than others, just based on our skill set, our personality. Again, if you're someone who's been working remote, your life might not have changed all that significantly. If you haven't done a lot of remote working and or leading, it's like, whoa. You know, I think though, secondarily, what we can think about doing right now Again, taking a growth mindset approach, which is, okay, there's a bunch of stuff maybe I'm learning right now, some of which is uncomfortable, some of which I can't wait to not have to do when I don't have to do this anymore. But can I come out of this with some new, to use a golf analogy, and I don't even golf, but new clubs in my bag, so to speak, right? Some new tricks, that I, some new skills that the nice part, I think what's going to happen hopefully after this, and again, I've been saying a lot to people recently, anyone who says they know what's going to happen or how it's going to happen is either lying or they're crazy because I don't think any of us know. But 
let's assume we fast forward to a point in time where this is behind us, right? Then it's going to be more a matter of choice. You know, for years, it's always been like a, a privilege or a, a benefit to be able to work from home. I think even people who enjoy working from home right now being forced to work from home is a different thing. But when we're back in a place where we get to choose, it's like, how can I integrate some of these skills that I learned through that experience, as well as some of the stress management techniques maybe that I had to focus on and bring those into my daily life? Because they can benefit me and our team and the work that we do and not being in the same sort of intense crisis, but then taking those skills forward. You know, I often think of this time right now recently and it's kind of an intense example, but I've had quite a bit of experience of loss and of grief in my life. And a friend of mine years ago said to me when I was grieving, lost both my parents, my sister passed away a few years ago. And a friend of mine said, you know, when you go through loss, you always come out different on the other side. The question is, are you gonna come out better and stronger or are you gonna come out weaker? And, it, and she wasn't saying it in a harsh kind of way, but are you going to be able to use this, even this really painful experience, it's gonna impact you and it's gonna change you, but you could actually have it change you for the better. And without getting too philosophical about it, I think most of us, if we've had loss, the people that we've lost, they would much prefer that we come out the other side of grieving their death mm. better and stronger than you know, grief-stricken and, and sort of impacted in a negative way for the rest of our lives. I don't think that's actually the best way for us to honor the experience and our love for them. And similarly, while this is really different, I've been trying to take that mindset and approach for myself personally and for my own team. Hey, look, this is hard. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how we're gonna get all the way through it. I trust that we can. And I also trust that on the other side of this, we can be better and stronger, but that doesn't mean we're all superhuman and this isn't gonna impact us. Right. And so we're not all superhuman, but we've seen the national hashtag that's been going around uh, that we're alone together, which yes. is this dichotomy. Right. And it's it's very powerful because you can feel that tension when you hear the hashtag alone together. Um, totally. And, you know, again, you are a book author with numerous books out there, Mike, and your new book, We're All in This Together, has just recently dropped on the shelves, both digitally and in person. You've accelerated your book launch. Tell us about this new book, why it's so important right now. Well, so, you know, I wrote this book last year, and as I was thinking about writing it, I mean, the focus of the book, right, it's called We're All in This Together. The subtitle is Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. So it's really a culmination of the 20 years of work and research that I've done, what a lot of what we've been talking about, how do you create that kind of environment. The second reason, though, David, that I wrote it and wanted it to come out in 2020 was given how divisive things are here in the United States and around the world, I just felt like I wanted to make a statement about not a political statement per se, but just like that we actually have a lot more common ground with each other than I think we think we do. And that to me has always been a tenet of great teams is really moving away from us versus them. And like, who's the them? Like, isn't it all us? And what's interesting is of course, when I wrote this book, I didn't think it was gonna come out in the midst of a global pandemic. But the interesting part has been, at least from this perspective, is this phrase, we're all in this together, is being uttered by everybody all the time because this experience, more than almost anything else I think in our lifetimes, on a global scale, we're all in this experience together. And so this notion of being alone together, which is paradoxical, you know, I'm in my home office, you're in your home office, people are listening to us probably, you know, not commuting to work unless they're listening to this much later when it gets released, sitting somewhere at home or walking around their neighborhood or staying, you know, 
that we're separated in a way we've never been forced to be physically separated before. And we're simultaneously connected to each other in this global experience all at the same time. So, you know, it's bizarre and challenging, but also there's a part of it that I'm finding, again, not to diminish the significance of people who are sick and people who are losing their lives, but I'm finding it oddly, like there's this solidarity with each other as human beings. And, and one of the things that great teams do, and I talk about this in the book is again, and I was talking about this earlier with respect to my sports experience, is figure out a way with all of the competing agendas and ambitions and goals and challenges and everything, find a way to move beyond that and to connect both with each other as human beings and what's the larger goal, what's the larger purpose, what's the why, like why are we doing this? I mean, if we're really just doing it because we wanna make some money, like there's nothing wrong with that, we all gotta feed ourselves and our families, but if there's something and over the last 10 years, as the economy's been as good as it's been, and now we're in a different phase of that, seeing where that's gonna play out, many of us have been privileged enough to choose to do work that really speaks to us and inspires us, or there's some larger purpose to it because we've had lots of options. But I think being able to tap into that larger purpose is really what fuels great teams and innovative thinking and doing something new and different. If we're just simply there to try to make a paycheck or, you know, get promoted or be better than the person next to us, you know, again, that's not evil. It's just probably not going to inspire us to anything great. I love how you've been shaping this conversation, Mike, about that we're in this together. You know, in essence, we're separated, but together. And right. I think that's what we saw in the Living Room Concert for America. You know, the call to action that Elton John brought on is, you know, even if it's just a little bit, how can you contribute to Feeding America? How can you right. contribute to the First Responders Children's Foundation, which is helping the first responders and paramedics who are helping everyone stay healthy, have their children have an education and have meals at the table while we're all coming together as a country, whether it's from loss and grief or even for inclusion and belonging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, one of the pillars in my book, I talk about focusing on inclusion and belonging. And what's interesting, you know, I started to look at this from the perspective of diversity and inclusion, which is an interesting thing for me as a straight white man, not that I don't pay attention to these things. I do. I actually got my degree in college in American studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity, grew up in Oakland, you know, as a white kid, but was often, especially by the time I got to high school, you know, a minority, not a minority in the culture, but just a minority in on my sports teams. I was the only white kid on my basketball team in the entire league um, when I played on the varsity basketball team at Skyline High School in Oakland. And so I had a lot of experience as a kid. And then I go to Stanford and it was like, oh my goodness, my friends would say, what's it like at Stanford? And I'd say, I've never been around this many white people in my life, which was true. And so I had this unique experience as a kid and as an adolescent and then as a young adult. And then as I got into my work, David, I was a little afraid to engage in issues of diversity because it felt to me like, well, I'm gonna leave that to the experts. I'm gonna leave that to people who have lived experience, people who are female or people of color or from different you know, self-identified minority groups. And in the last few years, as the world and the country has changed, it's felt more important for me to utilize some of the privilege that I have to talk about these things and engage in some of these discussions, even though they can be scary and uncomfortable. And what I found though, as I was researching this, not to minimize any of the importance of focusing on diversity and even inclusion, what came up in my research was this fascinating, but very simple and profound idea that if we look at Maslow's hierarchy, 
the third place on the pyramid, right? Once we get past the sort of physiological and safety needs, the first two, the next need that we have as human beings is a need to belong. So it's not a nice to have, it's not a warm, fuzzy thing, it's not a, um, a politically correct statement, it's actually a human need that we all have this need to belong. And so if we can frame some of the discussion even around diversity and inclusion as important as it is, but when we focus on inclusion, there's still this notion that there's in-groups and out-groups and the in-group is gonna include the out-group, which is important and necessary, but the goal ultimately is to get to a place where you create an environment where everyone, irrespective of their background, their race, their seniority, their age, their gender, their all of that, everyone feels like they belong. And that's not easy. Like a lot of things we've been talking about, simple concept, not super easy to do. And there are things though that we can do and can focus on that have and create more of a sense of belonging because all of us know what it feels like to belong. And we also know what it feels like to not belong. So we have some insight and some awareness around this. And if we can focus on creating environments where people really feel like they belong, then so many great things can happen. And when people don't feel like they belong, it's not a non-starter, but it creates all kinds of ancillary problems that you know the greatest mission and vision and values in the world can't make up for the fact of a lack of belonging. And so in the remote environment that we're in right now, Mike, what are some of the things we could do to help our team members and individuals feel like they belong? Well, you know, a couple things, and I just actually wrote a piece for Business Insider about this, that what can teams do to help each other thrive in the midst of this and have people feel like they belong? I mean, one simple thing we can do is just share a bit about how we're actually feeling and check in with other people. I mean, that's important all the time, but especially right now because people are stressed and they're scared and they're isolated. And again, on the one hand, you might be a person who's like, hey, I'm home and my kids are going crazy and they're trying to go to school and my spouse and this, and you might be someone who works and I mean, you live alone. And those are two very different experiences, but both challenging for different reasons. Um, so can we check in with each other human to human? You know, the metaphor that I use in my work when I'm talking about this, talking about authenticity and vulnerability is the iceberg. And it's about lowering the waterline on the iceberg so that we share a little more authentically and vulnerably how we're feeling. And we really ask other people, how are you? And not just the corny, hey, how are you? How's it going? What's up? Which is how we say hello, especially here in America, but really asking. And just that little bit, like a number of the teams I'm working with now, building into their meetings on video is to spend five minutes with everyone just kind of checking in, not necessarily whining and complaining. And we don't have to just fix each other, and, but just here's what's going on for me, what's going on for you. And that sort of human connection, which I've advocated for for years with teams, whether we're in person or remote, is even more important now. A second thing that we can do is most of us are busy, but also happy to help others, but we're not very good at asking for help and support from other people. So if we can actually start to reach out a little bit, yes, to offer some support, but where could we use some support and help? Practically speaking, sometimes just saying, hey, could you help me with this thing? Like I'm not used to using this technology or I'm really struggling with this. I don't know about you, but for me, other people's challenges and problems are always way easier to handle than my own, right? So if you come to me, David, with a challenge and say, hey, Mike, could you help me with this? I'm happy to do it, even if I'm busy, because like, yo, you trust me enough to ask me and give me the opportunity to do something that most of us love to do, which is help. So being real, checking in with others, and then offering support when we can are three really simple kind of human things that we can do. But then that has people feel more connected and more like they belong. And it sounds like that's similar to one of the chapters in your book, We're All in This Together, about embracing these sweaty palm conversations. Yeah. I mean, those are about, you know, conflict and feedback a lot of times, but sometimes a sweaty palm conversation can be asking for help. 
sometimes a sweaty palm conversation is being admitting that I'm struggling with something. It's just, you know, I had a mentor of mine years ago say, Mike, you know, it stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people is usually a 10 minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. <laughs> and right now, more than ever, we need to be having those sweaty palm conversations with not only our coworkers, but our family members, our friends, you know, our kids, whatever their age is. We've had to have some really important conversations with our daughters in the last, you know, number of weeks just to try to reassure them, but also I think modeling for people, whether it's our kids or our coworkers or our friends, what does it look like for a human being to go through a stressful, challenging situation? Again, we're not superhuman. You don't have to act like, I have it all together. I know how this is going to go. Like none of us do, and that's okay. It's amazing to see how technology continues to bridge the gap to help us be more human. Yep. We've seen in the last few weeks how even apps from Napster, you know, Shindig is back and House Party, which is owned by Epic Games, is back and HQ Trivia is back from the graveyard and right. all these other apps are coming out. It's as if they're bridging the gap of humans and machines. And a lot of those topics are what you talk about. And we're all in this together. What call to action do you have for our listeners here on Humane Today? Well, I mean, I think, again, I've been saying it in different ways, but I think have some compassion for ourselves in the midst of all this and also have some grace and compassion for other people. You know, the truth is, to your point, there are a bunch of companies and apps and pieces of technology that maybe we didn't realize were super important that are now becoming very important in a different way because of what's going on. And then there's many of us, myself included, who the product, the service, what we do has been significantly disrupted to the point where not only is it not able, we're not able to do it in the way that we did it, but it may or may not be useful or relevant in the short term or in the longer term. And that's super scary, I think, for all of us in different ways. But if we can have some compassion for ourselves and for each other, and again, a lot of these things are more personal and human, but sort of give people the benefit of the doubt. I've always believed and tried to operate from a place of most people are trying to do the best they can all the time. Nobody's out to really get me and screw me over or whatever, right? They're just trying to deal with themselves or their lives as best as they can. And I think as we navigate our way through this, both technologically, but also personally and from a human standpoint, you know, just remembering that us and everyone around us are doing the best we can. I think that's an important thing for us to remember. Mike Robbins, author of We're All In This Together, creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. Thanks for being with us on Humane. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.